Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Starting this Friday, you can watch Goats, starring David Duchovny, the same day it premieres in theaters. Also this Friday, don't miss Bachelorette, starring Kirsten Dunst, available on demand before you can see it in theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Coming up on this week's show, prepare to get in the mood for love and luscious Christopher Doyle cinematography as we review Wong Kar Wai's Days of Being Wild. Later, we'll bring you Q Shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by Days of Being Wild, we thought it was about time that we did an episode about movies with protagonists named York. But sadly, Sergeant York is not available for instant streaming. I Devastating. Know. Where have you gone, Gary Cooper? Well, so instead, in honor of Wong Kar Wai's beautiful films, many of them photographed by the aforementioned Christopher Doyle, we thought we would take a look at beautiful movies, paying close attention to what makes a movie beautiful and whether those beautiful movies look good on the small streaming screen. But first up, as you heard right at the top of the show, we're delighted we have a new sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable. And as part of that partnership, we're adding a new segment to the top of the show. It's called Opening Break, where each week Allison or I will spotlight one recommended title and give you a rundown of other notable films new on demand on cable. So, Allison, let's kick things off. What's the recommended title this week? Our pick is The Raid Redemption, which is available on VOD starting August 14th. It is an Indonesian action movie, though it's directed by Gareth Evans, who is from the UK. And it is just a kick-ass action movie in the very purest sense. There is very little going on other than action in this movie. It's including redemption. There's not much redemption. No. There's a lot of raiding. But very little redemption. They added the subtitle, I think, because they want to make this into a whole franchise. And so the next one will be called, I don't know, The Raid colon Electric Boogaloo or something. I'm not entirely sure, but this is The Raid Redemption. Yes, and it's got it's about a SWAT team that is fighting their way up through multiple levels of a high-rise filled with criminals just so they can reach the boss who's at the top of the high-rise. Classic video game logic applied to movies. The villains get increasingly tougher the higher they go up in the building. Uh, and the, the lead guy, played by Iko Uweiss, really amazing martial artist really yeah. really amazing you know it's funny that it does look like a video game in the way that it's structured but all of the action in this is very real and all of the performers are doing their own stunts and they look just painful and astounding there are some amazing feats of martial arts going on here yeah this is a style of martial arts that involves a lot of like elbows and knees and they don't look like blows that you can fake very easily there's a lot of really painful looking things in this movie you have a favorite action scene? Uh, there are a few great fights that stand out to me. You, you know, know the scene that's jumping to mind off the top of my head is actually not necessarily a fight, but a scene where he's hiding, the main character is hiding behind like a fake wall and the bad guys are trying to find him and sticking a sword through the wall to try to find where he is and there's one time they get 
so close it like cuts the side of his face but he has to like keep composed and not flinch or make a noise so they know he's there and that is an amazingly tense scene yeah that's a great scene i am particularly fond of the henchman named mad dog who is pretty small as a guy he's not like the biggest guy there but all of his fight scenes he just seems to not have to obey the laws of gravity (laughs) he just flies through the air and he is totally frightening and impressive So that is The Raid Redemption, and that's available on August 14th. Okay, two more VOD titles to keep on your radar, which we haven't seen, but I'm certainly curious about. The first one is called About Cherry, premieres on August 9th. This film, which I'm just starting to hear about, is coming to VOD. It stars James Franco, Dev Patel, and Heather Graham. It's about a young woman who goes into the world of pornography to support herself, the the presence of Heather Graham certainly gives you Boogie Nights strains. I haven't seen the movie, but actually I just discovered while I was researching this, it's directed by Stephen Elliott, who is a writer, a novelist. He has a website called The Rumpus, which I've actually written for. I had no idea that this guy who I've actually written for is now a film director. So now I'm extra curious to see it. Uh, and of course, my background in porn certainly makes it especially interesting. I mean, porn Obviously, yeah. performing, not viewing. Those are two separate well, things. You know, you just have new insights to bring. Exactly, exactly. So that's called About Cherry, premiering on August 9th. Premiering on August 14th is a film called Red Dog. This film also I hadn't heard of, but apparently a hugely popular film in Australia. It's an Australian film about a dog that unites a community of lonely working men and allison if you know anything about me you know i'm a dog lover yeah you can barely say the word dog without going i'm about to burst into tears right now just (laughs) hearing this dog which apparently is based on a true story of a real dog that was roaming the australian countryside looking for its lost master stumbled on this community and then this is from a review i found it quote saved lives played matchmaker the locals built a statue in this dog's honor wow this is a freaking awesome dog (laughs) and i love dogs i love movies about dogs i have a dog he's normally here he's normally nosing your microphone while we try to record he has a crush on he wants to take my place yeah he really wants to be a part of the podcast he's not here at the moment so maybe i'm just missing him but in any event i'm actually pretty curious about this one also stars josh lucas uh the american uh, actor i'm not sure what he's doing in australia but he's there somehow he becomes the dog's new owner spoiler alert Uh, So that's Red Dog, and it's premiering on August 14th. Okay, now it's time for Q Shots, which, as we said, is going to be about beautiful movies this week. A very vague topic. So let's start there. What makes something beautiful in film? Hmm. Is it the people, the scope, the framing, the color, the rarity of the images? You know, the old adage of beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That certainly applies here, because there's so many different ways to judge beauty. In a film, when I say like a beautiful movie, quote unquote, what's the first kind of thing that comes into your mind? What in your mind makes a movie beautiful? Well, what comes to my mind are usually things like the films of a Wong Kar Wai or a Terrence Malick, someone who's known for these really exquisite compositions and these very beautifully photographed either landscapes or rooms or just the way they photograph people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that. But, you know, it was interesting when we were talking about this topic, I just did a quick search to see what people had brought up in their lists of most beautiful films. Mm -hmm. And there were often titles that I think do have stunning visuals, but ones that are maybe a lot more notable than the film itself. Hmm. Uh, Things like The Fall, Tarsum, I've seen getting mentioned a lot. And he certainly is capable of making these amazing visuals, sometimes 
I think his films suffer because he's so focused on the visuals mm -hmm. um, or, uh, you know, What Dreams May Come, a film that really did do some remarkable, it completely modeling and drove me insane, but uh, that really did, you know, have some remarkable visual effects and, and just remarkable visuals. And I think that it seems like there's a popular connotation that it's films that just are maybe that's the only part that you pay attention to in mm -hmm. a way, you know, that like what the film is about is almost unimportant style over substance or style as substance perhaps. Yes. yes. But so what, what comes to your mind when you think of beautiful films? Well, it's interesting that you say you think of directors. I don't necessarily think of filmmakers, maybe because the people you mentioned, I'm not as big a fan of, but you're right. A lot of people would say Wong Kar Wai or Terrence Malick. The first thing that comes to my mind, honestly, is like Technicolor, old Technicolor with those crazy, vibrant colors. For some reason, that's what I think of when I think of beautiful imagery. Uh, I won't mention any movies like that when we give our specific picks because I couldn't find a lot of movies that I really wanted to talk about like that that are actually on Netflix Instant. But that's the kind of thing that I think of is really vibrant color. And I do have one movie that has some amazing colors, but it's not one of those 1940s, 1950s Technicolor movies. I'm not sure why that's what it makes me think of. Because it's not like I adore movies of Technicolor from the 1950s, but that's, for some reason, that's the first thing that comes to me. And then the other thing would be sort of sweeping vistas. You know, the filmmaker I would probably think of first would be like David Lean. You know, those huge epic movies, The Bridge on the River Kwai and... Dr. Zhivago or something where we get Lawrence of Arabia, you know, just huge movies, 70 millimeter, maybe gigantic vistas scope that to me signifies beauty. I don't know why, why there's no, no reason. The, the movie that inspired this is not an epic film in terms of scope. It's a very intimate film, right? but it is beautiful. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that there's also that theatrical experience in which you can kind of feel dwarfed by an, by an image, hmm. you know, like the grandness of some of those films that you mentioned is a, like a feeling that I think is, it, it is a part of beauty and it is a part of visual appreciation, but it's also very specific to the theatrical experience in that way. And I wonder how that ties into when you're watching something on, say, your laptop screen, right. you know, that if that feeling just can't really be there, you can still appreciate how it looks and you appreciate the composition and how it was shot. But that idea of it filling your vision that way, it's it's just not going to be the same experience. No, definitely not. And I've tried to watch a movie like Lawrence of Arabia on my television and it, I actually couldn't get through it. I, it was it didn't work. But then when I saw it. In 70 millimeter on a big screen, it had a completely different effect on me. It was much more powerful. So, yeah, there are movies, I think, that have to be seen on the big screen, which is unfortunate for us because we're doing a podcast about streaming movies. But I think that'll be something interesting to talk about because I've got movies that have that sort of scope to them that are about bigness. So what happens when you watch them on your computer I don't, or, or, your, or your laptop or your television? They, I don't know. It can be interesting to discuss. Should we get to our picks? Let's get to our picks. All right. Why don't you go first? What's your first pick? All right. My first pick is actually one that I associate with colors okay. and with it, – it has beautiful vistas, but I don't know that that was the first thing that ever came to my mind when I was thinking about it, which is uh, Black Orpheus, 1959 film directed by Marcel Camus. It's you know French director making a Brazilian film, and it's – uh, an adaptation of the legend of Orpheus and Eurydice set in uh, modern, at the time, favela in Rio de Janeiro during the carnival. And this is a film that 
is so vibrant just in just how it shows the city, but also in um, in terms of its colors, in terms of its movement. It's during the carnival. So not just are there there are like crazy costumes and just everyone out in the streets, but everyone seems to be constantly in motion. Even when you see the main character who drives, you know, a streetcar, everyone is kind of like bobbing to music uh on the streetcar as they're riding. Je suis qu'une guitare, je n'ai pas le droit de le révéler. Je voudrais tellement, car c'est très important. Si ma voix n'est pas couverte par celle de la grande ville, je vais dire ce que je sais. Écoutez-moi. So there is this kind of amazing just beauty in the, in the scenes of people and in the, the carnival as it spills out into the streets. But it's also set in the favelas, which, you know, are up in the hills. And so the main character has the kind of view that, like, is just so remarkable. It's, it's hard to believe that it's actually, you know, that anyone could have that outside their window uh, because they're up on the hills. They have the whole city below them and the water. And, you know, this is a film that I first saw uh, projected when uh, I was in college. And I remember being very struck by the visuals and how it was so bright and it was beautiful. But it was actually a pretty good experience looking at it. And it's uh, available on Hulu Plus. Looking at it on my laptop screen, just uh, I think because because of a certain brightness to the visuals, because it's not murky, even in the nighttime scenes, and because... Uh, you know, it it's pretty much in motion a lot of the time. That uh, there there is a real sense that you weren't losing a lot, even when you see those grand you know cityscapes uh, of the of the town below. That you don't really feel like it's getting so compressed that mm -hmm. you're losing part of the the visual experience. So I I was actually surprised, pleasantly surprised by how good it looked even in the context of a of a streaming window that's black orpheus a 1959 film it is streaming on hulu plus okay i'll pair that with my most colorful movie which is available on netflix it's ron the 1985 movie directed by akira kurosawa this movie also has beautiful landscapes and epic scope as well it has it has a lot of the different quote-unquote beautiful things we discussed it does have the landscape it has amazing compositions it has amazing color the movie has it all it's it's actually a masterpiece i have to admit i had never seen this movie before and it's almost immediately one of my favorite movies that i've ever seen it really just is stunning uh this one i watched on my television so i have an hd tv so i was able to watch it through my playstation on netflix streaming and i have to say it looked really good this movie is on hd streaming on netflix and it looks great. Bright pops of color. The costumes that the characters are wearing are really just incredible looking. And they do look pretty amazing on uh, on an HDTV. It's based on King Lear, uh, this old aging uh, Japanese lord who decides to give his kingdom to his three sons. And the chaos that ensues when he thinks that it's all going to go well, but things don't go according to his plan. Shire. いつの矢を束ねたも俺のとは言えません。この死ねくれ者。また倒けた振る舞いを。倒けた振る舞いは父上の<笑><笑> 
It's an incredibly violent film, but even the violence is amazing because you have these huge battle scenes which are so expertly choreographed by Kurosawa. And even blood, there's a lot of gore and blood. Some of the blood is almost sprayed like ab- abstract art paint, you know, the way that the blood will sp- splurt on a, on a wall, on a white wall, or onto, into the air. There's something almost abstract about it. It's an amazing movie. I mean, I was reading about the movie after I saw it. It has all these amazing, you know, metaphors. It, you can read almost anything into the film. Uh, Roger Ebert has an essay in his Great Movies collection about the film. He speculates that it's about Kurosawa himself, who is at the end of his career, and he's sort of reflecting on the idea of a old master kind of having to give up his kingdom to the next generation and not wanting to. I read a really interesting uh, the essay from the Criterion Collection. This film wa- uh, was in the Criterion Collection. I think it's out of print now. But Michael Wilmington had a great essay in the Criterion Collection version that says it's about the threat of nuclear war because this lingering threat of violence, that there's peace, but at any moment violence, potentially apocalyptic violence could erupt. I was watching it, and what I kept thinking of were – I was thinking of sports owners who adopt their franchises from their fathers. You know, fathers pass down their sports franchises to their sons who don't know what they're doing and ruin the franchises. And I'm sure if you're a sports fan, you can think of many examples. And that's what I was thinking of. Like, there's just all these wonderful things you can read uh, into the film. And it does look pretty impressive. I mean, I would love to see the movie on a big screen. But I think if you do have a decent HD TV, at least... It's going to look pretty amazing because it is an HD print that's on Netflix. So that's Ron, and it's available on Netflix Watch Instantly. All right. My next pick is also available on Netflix Watch Instantly. It is Enter the Void, the 2010 film written and directed by Gaspar Noé. And it was his, you know, his passion project. And uh, he, he financed it from the commercial success of Irreversible, apparently, which is a funny thing to think about. Like, that was his sellout film. Huge hit. <laughs> Huge mainstream hit. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Enter the Void, I think this is not a film that I think works as well on a small screen it's okay it's really one that benefits from being able to immerse yourself in it for reasons i'll talk about later but uh you know this is a film about a boy played by nathaniel brown though you don't necessarily see him that often because a lot of the film is shot from his point of view or from directly behind his head or from when he's a ghost because he spends a lot of fil- the film as a ghost uh, and it's shot from ghost point of view you know, this is a film in which he gets murdered and then kind of drifts above the city of Tokyo. And the film uses a lot of like models and uh, of the city in which the camera can kind of like zoom in to rooms or above the streets. Uh, and it includes also a lot of just crazy psychedelic scenes that Gaspar Noé inserted, you know, based on his experiences, personal experiences with psychedelics, but that really, I think, are there to give you as close an experience to doing drugs as is possible with visuals. Mm-hmm. There, there's just crazy, like, loopy uh visuals of like lights and colors and with those in particular i feel like they're there to really fill up your whole field of vision that if that doesn't happen then they just look like a screensaver you know (laughs) and i think that 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 really kind of detracts from the experience okay there is something physical in uh there his films you know irreversible had that like drone that drone sound that uh was in the soundtrack that was deliberately there to make you feel kind of ill and i think in this it's supposed to throw you kind of off balance and give you that sense of 
somehow, you know, being high on something. And I don't think that that necessarily works as well when you're watching it on a smaller screen. Then again, if you haven't seen this film, you're probably not going to get a chance to watch it on a big screen anytime soon. And I do think it's worth watching anyway, just because beyond the certain, the psychedelic goofy aspects, and there are a lot of goofy aspects. I won't even, like the end, the end scene <laughs> is so ridiculous that like, I, you know, it's great that he commits to it, but that it, it just is like a little laugh out loud. But that this has, I think, some of the most inventive visuals of any film I've ever seen, uh, including the sequence where after the main character dies, it essentially flashes through his life. He sees his life as he's dying and it moves forward in these edits that are like blinks almost and timed like blinks or like a slideshow. And that whole sequence and the way that things tie together is so amazing. I, I really think that like the way the visuals are matched up and the way it kind of tells his whole story in these tiny segments is something else and uh, looks great on any size screen. So it it is worth looking for on the big screen if you can see it <laughs> you know it's the closest you'll get to a cinematic experience that uh replicates chemicals in your body you know that you've introduced that is enter the void and it is streaming on netflix okay i only saw it on my com my computer i've only seen it on the small screen i never got to see it on the big screen and i felt it was almost too overwhelming in that context i almost feel like i don't know if i'd want to see it on the big screen some i felt like i don't have thank god i don't have epilepsy but i felt like i was gonna have yeah, an I was epileptic gonna say, fit even, at you know what like even the opening sequence you can probably still find the opening sequence just by itself on youtube, like YouTube i think the opening titles and the opening titles which are really remarkable on their own but they could definitely give you epilepsy yeah <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think it's a pretty intense experience, even on the small screen. That's what I would say. But I haven't, I haven't seen it on the big screen, so I have no frame of reference. But that is a really fascinating movie and a beautiful one too. Absolutely. My next pick is called For All Mankind. It's from 1989. It's directed by Al Reinert, and this one is available on Hulu Plus. It's another Criterion film. This is a movie that was edited out of the footage from the trips that NASA made to the moon. It basically takes all of the different moon landings and combines them into like one massive narrative and pretends as if it was just one trip and cuts between different trips to create one experience of the whole thing from getting ready to walking into the ship to lift off to exiting the earth to orbiting to heading to the moon to riding around the moon on a lunar buggy to heading home it's the whole thing the sunset is just as beautiful as always in the space business in Africa, there are a lot of nomads out in the desert. Clear desert nights, uh, you see the fires from all of these. These little yellow dots that represented fires from all of these nomads camping out. And you realize the broad area that you're looking at. And each of those little dots represented people, other humans that are out there in an environment which I would consider more strange than the environment they might think about me. This movie, even on a small screen, really does fill you with a sense of wonder. This is like one of those movies where you watch it and you go, well, this is why, not God, but humans invented movie cameras. It's like to see these things. It's like, why go to the moon? Why would we do that? Why would we do something that basically pointless? Well, it's like to prove that we could, to give ourselves a challenge. And when you're there, 
you want to be able to say, hey, look what we did. This was pretty amazing. Even on your little screen, on your television or your computer, the shots that they filmed of the Earth from the moon are they like they get you choked up. Like I actually was having like a physical, emotional reaction to the film. I mean, that says something about the power of the images. Now, I will say you had one movie so far that was on Hulu. Did you have any, like, buffering problems when you were watching it? No, I actually tend to have more with Netflix than I do really? with Hulu. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I had the opposite experience. Yeah. This movie, I actually had to, like, I actually gave up for a little while because it was getting so choppy that I was like, I'm having this emotional experience and it keeps taking me out of it by freezing. <laughs> yeah. Not for very long. You know, we're but talking about that it interrupts your a experience. second or two yeah. seconds and it really takes you out of it. So because it is HD, you know, I almost wonder if maybe Hulu is... I don't know the specifics. I don't know the tech specs, but I wonder who has a better HD quality HD, 720, 1080. I don't really know, but I was my I was wondering if maybe Hulu's HD is a little HRD and it was having a, a problem with my connection or something, or if it was their website, or I don't know. But I I usually have very good success with Netflix, and with that movie, I've watched other movies with Hulu and it hasn't happened, but for some reason that night... When I was watching it, I was having a little, uh, a little problem. I'd be curious to hear from listeners. Actually, this might be something that they can tell us about. You know, feedback at filmspottingsvu.com. How their experiences with different websites and buffering is. I'd be curious to know. So, other than that qualification, I would say this is a spectacular movie. It is really amazing. I'm not a big space nut, but this movie had an emotional impact. So that's For All Mankind, and it's available on Hulu+. Plus. I've never seen that, but I'm definitely going to. It's amazing. It sounds amazing. All right, my last pick is from a director that we've, I mentioned earlier, and I felt like needed to include one of his films on here. It is The Thin Red Line, 1998. It is streaming on Netflix Watch Instantly, directed by Terrence Malick. Uh, not my favorite Malick film. I don't think, I, and for most people, it's probably not their favorite Malick film. It's certainly flawed, but is also just really like all of his films, very beautiful. So it's, you know, follows a World War II infantry division uh, as they're in Guadalcanal and they're going to basically storm this hill that's being defended by Japanese soldiers who are heavily armed uh, and has a huge cast, including Sean Penn, Jim Caviezel, Nick Nolte, Elias Koteas, Ben Chaplin, uh, and other people who were, their roles were kind of shrunk. They thought they had bigger roles, like Adrian Brody, who kind of famously... Isn't George Clooney in George the one Clooney's scene? George Clooney's in it. Uh, John Travolta is in it. It's got a giant cast, and it doesn't pay that much attention to particular characters. Right. So they all kind of flutter in and out, and you might notice that they're famous and then they're they're gone but what's really interesting about this film uh you know the cinematography is by john toll and it, it does combine this fairly gritty and uh bloody war like battle sequence war scene with some of the most poetic and beautiful cinematography and like voiceover musings mm -hmm. you know that there's this real interesting disconnect between the actual the moment that's being portrayed which is you know this terrible moment of war in which people are know they're going to die they're doing something very dangerous and and then this extremely beautiful uh cinematography including you know that malik is famous for his fields of, of grass right? right and this is some of his most evocative fields of grass because they are awesome fields of grass it does right because they're they're soldiers creeping through them right trying to avoid getting shot and so you have these scenes of like really intense 
beauty where people are basically hiding to save their lives. Um, and, and, and there is some very, that divide is very striking. And I don't think the film ever really resolves it. Like the film does, has always struck me as like, not quite a full thought, you know, that like the, the Malik doesn't have a full thesis going on, you know, but uh, I, I, I think that in that gap between uh, what's being depicted and how it's being depicted, there is something very interesting. If I go first, I'll wait for you there. On the other side of the dark waters. Why should I be afraid to die? I belong to you. We're going straight up that hill there. How many men do you think it's worth? How many lives? There's nowhere we can hide except in each other. Go! Go! And uh, this is a film I took a look again um, uh, on my computer via Netflix. And I took a look on my, my TV as well via streaming. And I think it still it looks great on both. You know, it, it's pretty sweeping in terms of it's just these landscapes but uh, you know the way that the film goes back and forth between those landscapes and these very intimate shots particularly in memory when you know characters are remembering like one of them is remembering his wife or something that uh that there are similar shots in days of being wild that we'll talk about later uh following after this but that are very sensory like they come so close that they're almost like a recreation of a sense memory and that i i think that those translate really well, regardless of the size of screen, because they uh, they deliberately recall something very intimate. Mm -hmm. So that's The Thin Red Line. It is on Netflix. Watch instantly. It is interesting that we've picked two war movies on a list of beautiful movies, that they're war movies. I mean, I'm counting like Ron as like a yeah. war movie, which, I mean, it, it's, it is a war movie, but it, it is incredibly beautiful. And it has a similar thing where you're stunned by the beauty of these of these uh, battle scenes, but they're also so horrific. But it's interesting to consider those two things side by side, the fact that they're so visually stunning, but also horrific at the same time. That's a weird contradiction. But anyway, uh, my last pick, I wanted to do something a little different because we've, we've got a lot of like the greatest movies of all time here. We've like had, we've hit five titles. They're all pretty much masterpieces, classics. But I wanted to acknowledge the fact that We've talked about, well, this looks pretty good. This doesn't look as good. This would be good on a, on a big screen. I often find myself, though, when, you know, when I'm not in the mood for something that heavy, looking on what's new on Netflix and finding something new because the new titles are going to be in HD. They've got you know, nice cinematography, and sometimes they, those, are, those are the movies that look the best on Netflix streaming is because they're like, they've just been you know, digitally made. They look great. And I find myself sometimes watching these movies even though I hate them. <laughs> and I, I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago on the blog that I run on IndieWire called Critic Wire, where I sort of called these movies like HD porn, not high definition pornography. That's something else. This is I'm like, sure that's a thing, though. That oh, that <laughs> not that I would know, but I'm sure that is a thing. <laughs> but uh, no, this is like the fact, like it just shows off the puts your HD TV through the paces, you know. Which I'm sure if we compared the HD stream of a movie with the HD Blu-ray. It would look better on Blu-ray. But even without the Blu-ray, even on streaming, some movies do look incredible. And the movie that I've watched 
I'm ashamed to admit I've watched parts of it like three or four times, even though I hate the movie, is The Last Airbender from 2010, M. Night Shyamalan. I saw this movie in the theater with 3D, and it was one of the most miserable experiences of my life. In 3D, this was one of the, really the first wave of movies that was 3D added post-conversion to make extra money. It looked so bad. It was just awful. It was not in 3D. It was in Blurovision, you know, Darkovision, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. You know, they basically made the movie blurry and you were paying extra for glasses to make it in focus. That's what it was. Watching it on my television at home, which I don't have a t- super top of the line TV either. I have an HDTV, but it's not like super. It looks amazing. This movie looks amazing, Allison. I tur- I literally turn off the sound because there's no reason to listen to it. There's this definitely movie is not. Nonsense. Dialogue is horrible. And I just watch, and it looks amazing. And I've, I've sat and watched this movie in silence for like 20 minutes at a time. Wow. Like, it looks incredible. Like, and it has these amazing visuals, these weird, furry, I don't know what they are, dragon creatures, and this little kid with the bald head who can, like, manipulate air. He's an airbender. And, you know, characters who can manipulate fire and water and they can do these incredible things with, you know, I'm sure this movie cost, must have cost over $100 million. It has top-notch special effects. It looks stunning. The Fire Nation has declared war. But some believe there is still hope. I always knew you returned. And it looks great on your t- on your HDTV. I haven't really watched it on my computer. I'm not sure if I would go that far as to watch it on a computer <laughs> or an iPad. I'd be curious how it looks on like a high-end iPad, actually, which I don't have. Uh, but on a TV, it really looks amazing. And I'm sure – I don't know. Do you have any titles like this? Do you ever do this? Do you ever just watch well, a movie that you would never watch under other circumstances just because it looks so good well, on HD? It's not – it's, it's not bad. It's a very good movie, but it's like one that I would not ever pluck out again to watch for fun. But mm. I've watched the beginning of many times. Yeah. The Mill and the Cross, mm. which uh, I happen to have a Blu-ray of. They sent me a Blu-ray screener of it when I had to review it for something. And I had just happened to have gotten my Blu-ray player. And I watched the beginning of it so many times just because when it first comes on, the visuals look so much better than they ever you know had before i was just like i was stunned i'm wondering if (laughs) if we have listeners who do this because when there are so i mean the movies we've already described these amazing masterpieces ron the thin red line why am i putting on the last airbender i I don't know why but i do it i'm wondering if uh, other listeners do this and they can empathize with me i'd love to hear from you send us some feedback what is like your hd porn what's the movie that you're kind of ashamed to admit you watch just because it looks so good on your hd tv Email us uh, feedback at filmspottingsvu.com. I want to know. Make me feel better about myself, (laughs) please. I'm having – this is killing me. In 2004, Jay Hoberman called Days of Being Wild, quote, the movie with which Wong Kar Wai became Wong Kar Wai, the most influential, passionate, and romantic of neo-new wave directors. The film, the first part of an informal trilogy with the far more widely seen In the Mood for Love and 2046, concerns a ladies' man named York, played by Leslie Chung, and his brief but intense relationships with two women, a soccer stadium clerk, played by Maggie Chung, and a nightclub singer, 
played by Karina Lau. Allison, when I discovered a few weeks ago that there was a big cachet of Wong Kar Wai movies streaming on Netflix and threw out there to you that I would love to do one of them as a possible listener's choice option, I let you pick which movie we would offer up as the listener's choice option. We could have reviewed As Tears Go By or Fallen Angels or Happy Together, but you decided to pick Days of Being Wild. So my question to you is, why pick Days of Being Wild with all those other options? You had seen it already. I hadn't. Um, so how did your viewing of it this time compare with your memory to it? And since we're talking about beautiful films and streaming this week, how well does Days of Being Wild's beautiful Christopher Doyle cinematography hold up when watched? I don't know if you watched it on your laptop or your television, but how did it look? Okay. Uh, well, I asked you a lot. A I lot of questions, yes. So I, I would say I picked it partially just because I wanted to see it again, but because... Totally valid reason. Yeah, I think that Hoberman, you know, has a point. This is the movie, like the kind of the first Wong Kar Wai as Wong Kar Wai movie. And you see so many of the themes that he returns to again and again and the actors that he's, you know, used. And the characters, in fact, the characters in this he has used again and again. I, I think all of them turn up in 2046, except for one, for obvious reasons. There's something that just seems like this, this is one of the Wong Kar Wai films, like the definitive Wong Kar Wai films in which he really found his voice. Um, so that's why I picked it. Uh, in terms of watching it in streaming... I watched it on my TV. Okay. And, I, you know, I don't think that... I, I think that the first time I saw this, it was uh, it was projected, if I'm remembering correctly. It was, it was a while ago. But uh, that's still, I think, the ideal way that I would want to see this, like most movies. It looked pretty good on my screen, but I, it didn't seem as... Uh, not as in high definition as I wanted it to be. Well, I don't think it is in high definition. Yeah. I think it's an uh, SD print that's on yeah. Netflix, which I think is part of the problem. Right. And I kind of wonder if I should have just watched it on my computer and not just blown it up on the TV. It probably would have looked a little better. It is still extremely beautiful. Uh, there are a few people uh, and few teams of people as good at filming faces and uh, at, at filming beauty, I think, like, beauty in terms of people as uh Wong Kar Wai and Christopher Doyle and you know this is it's a film that's not maybe as visually lush as some of the ones that they would go on to do but it's still you know its greatest special effect are its actors uh particularly Leslie Chung who is just so handsome he's like uh and and Maggie Chung who together are like two of the most beautiful people that you'll see on screen uh, and I, I think that that the way that they are photographed remains like incredibly both intimate and impressive in a film that is about heartbreak and longing. The sensuality that is given to that is uh, really what makes it so poetic. Yeah. So what did you think of, of this as the kind of formative Wong Kar Wai film? I know that you are not as big a fan of Wong Kar Wai as I am. So did this change your opinion of him a bit? Did it make you feel like you understood him better as a filmmaker? Oh, abs oh yes. I've unlocked uh, the, with the key. of No, I, I enjoyed it. I did like it. It doesn't look fantastic. On I watched it on my television as well. It is an, I'm pretty sure it's an SD print on the Netflix streaming, and it doesn't look fantastic. The movie, I'm guessing that, that this print came from maybe around 2003 or four when it, it was re-released in theaters. That's when that Jay Hoberman piece is from. It looks like it could stand an HD remastering or something. Like I don't think it's available on Blu-ray yet, 
And maybe when it comes out on Blu-ray someday, hopefully, it'll look as beautiful as it deserves. Because you can tell that it's a beautiful movie, but it's just not the ideal presentation, as you were saying. It is a very Wong Kar Wai-yin movie, and I enjoyed it. I don't know if I... I'm sure I didn't enjoy it as much as you because you are such a huge fan, but I did like it. I mean, the thing that... It is a powerful film about love and the way in which love moves in only one direction. You know, and I like the way that the structure reflects that, where Leslie Chung's character is this ladies' man, and he seduces women kind of serially, but once they're actually interested in him, he becomes distracted and moves on to the next person. But then when he sort of discards someone, we begin to follow them and follow their life without him for a little while and see how they have a new relationship, which inevitably also has a sort of one-directional love story where Maggie Chung's character is discarded. She has this long period where she's getting over it, and she meets this cop, and the cop is in love with her, but she's too distracted by the relationship that she's just gotten out of that she can't really see that, and they have this kind of was never meant to be doomed non-love affair, which is so poetic and touching. And then we go back to Leslie Chung for another doomed relationship. And then that ends, and then we follow that person. And even right down to the way that his character, Leslie Chung's character, is adopted. And you get the sense that, at least maybe, you know, in his mind, like his mother never loved him the way that he loves her, even though he's never met her. It really has a very cohesive vision of what love is, which is to be, like, unhappy. And I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but the way that that is depicted in the film is very powerful. To be beautifully unhappy, though. To be beautifully, to be unhappy gorgeously miserable. in the most miserable. beautiful way possible. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's funny. Even with, uh, with Leslie Chung's character's adopted mother, who is this former call girl, basically— that she says many times she doesn't tell him who his real mother is to keep him. Right. Like that the only way she could hold on to him. And she says like, I don't even care if you hate me because at least you'll still remember me that way. That like this knowledge is the only hold she has on him that, you know, there is that sense that not only is love one directional, but that you have no hold on someone, even if you love them, you know, that they just slip through your fingers and and they may leave and you may never see them again. Or if you do, they may never recognize you. You know, there is this real drifting sense in this film that I think you see in a lot of his other films as well going forward that uh, there's this restlessness, uh, you know, that the characters travel, uh, go back home to Macau, go to the Philippines, end up in different places, but keep running into each other seemingly. Mm. But that there is this sense of like, that romantic longing is tied into this restlessness in general of like a kind of search for something that like a home maybe, or, you know, a search for something that keeps him going. York describes himself as a bird without legs. He, you know, the, he, he uses this story that this bird without legs that has to fly all the time. Right, can never land. Can never land. And when it only lands when it dies. Right. And later another character basically calls him on that and is like, you know, that's just a line you use on women. To seduce them, but, yeah. uh, That, you know, there is this idea in it that like a lot of the characters are like that. Yeah. That they've sustained heartbreak once. And then are kind of it like wounds them so that they they're they're they have nothing holding them anywhere anymore. Yeah. They have no anchor. Yeah, there's restlessness and there's also sort of this distance. All the characters are very distant from one another. And I felt also that the movie was in some ways distant from them, the way that it kind of moves between them. And 
it's almost a strength and a flaw of the movie to me because it is a little cold in a way because it is so distant. Like we we don't really get to know Leslie Chung's character all that much. I don't think you know because maybe because he doesn't really understand himself. And I felt in some ways, which I liked and also didn't like, that the movie, he's almost keeping the movie at arm's length the same way that Mm -hmm. he keeps women at arm's length. As if the movie itself is like another lover that he's, he seduces us the way he seduces Maggie Chung, and then that's as far as it goes. And we're sort of looking at him longingly from a distance in a way, which I thought is kind of beautiful and powerful and amazing, but also in some ways kind of leaves you wanting more, which I'm sure is the point, but I don't know. It can be somewhat frustrating. I did also think it was interesting. That I, I, maybe I, you would disagree, but I almost felt like anyone else would follow any of the other characters in this movie as the main character, but because, you know, because he's kind of the least likable person in the movie in some ways maybe the his adopted mother is less likable <laughs> but i felt like some of the other characters were i wanted to spend so much more time with them you know that i i was attracted to them in some ways and his character was so standoffish and distant and kept pushing people away that i was like why am i drawn to him in some way i don't know am i well, imagining I, I think, something no, i there? think it's an interesting read but you know i think that the film is also about the effect he has on all of these other people mm-hmm. the pull he has over them as much as you know they he is a terrible person to get attached to right but that everyone even the like people who are kind of platonically attached to him like his best friend he gives his best friend who kind of just crawls into his window sometimes he gives him the keys to his car at one point and it's like he he's like he's kind of like almost passing the chance to be him right right along to his friend yeah. who tries it really hard for a second and then can't he can't do pull it. it off can't pull it off but you know like even then in that sense there's this almost uh, like in terms of that friendship, that same kind of longing. Since he can't hang out with his friend anymore, he tries to become him instead. And even, you know, the the cop character who is uh, played by Andy Lau plucks Leslie Chung's character off from the street, just happens to see him one time for no reason other than, I don't know, the basic like appeal, you know, that, that he seems to have over people and like stays with him through like a real terrible series of events. Mm-hmm. I think that, the film is a little bit about that, about someone who has the ability to to have this pull on people and has no interest in using it to keep them. Right. You know? Or reciprocating in some way. Right. I think you're very right in that you don't get a good sense of him as a person. But mm-hmm. that, in, in a way, you feel like he's always used to being looked at even by the camera. And so there is that sense of a, a shield. Mm-hmm. So what did you think of the cinematography? You know, Christopher Doyle and Wong Kar Wai are famous uh, collaborators who worked together for, on several films after this. Did you think that uh, it was impressive signs of things to come? I felt like I was more interested in the production design in some ways because the movie has such a distinct look, which is so distinct of Wong Kar Wai's style. The colors, the sort of sumptuous colors. And uh, I was more interested in like the, the, yeah, like the scenery, the design. Then I didn't really find myself noticing the cinematography per se that much. I don't know if it was because I was watching it on a SD print and it just didn't pop the way it should. But I kept like looking at like how kind of beautifully decrepit everything is, which mm-hmm. is a very kind of Wong Kar Wai signature. The way everything, you know, the movie is set in the past and it feels, everything feels old in a way that's really beautiful. Everything's very lived in. So I found myself more drawn to that necessarily than the 
oh my god, look at the way this is framed or the the color of this. I, I, that was what was catching my eye more. I don't know about you. Yeah, I think you know it is. I I think few people have ever been as drawn to the image of someone kind of lying in bed, not necessarily uh, like postcoital, but just kind of flopping around in bed, you know, like this is a film that's really a lot about people hanging out in their undershirts and like whiling smoking. away. Yeah. Smoking, whiling away the afternoon or a long night with a fan on uh, there. There is a lot of that. Uh, and I think every once in a while there were, there were particular shots that I did think of in terms of the cinematography, just because of how, uh, especially like uh, when when Leslie Chung and Maggie Chung are in bed, uh, I think the first time, their faces together is, are just like they're, so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And they're laying scenes... sort of in opposite directions, mm -hmm. but their heads are together. Yeah. That is a very striking image. Yeah. And there are one or two scenes like that. But I agree. I don't think it's as um, kind of The like... best was yet to come yes. from a cinematography perspective. I will say, I don't. we don't want to spoil it. We don't want to give anything away if you haven't seen the movie. But I will say... The Leslie Chung's character's arc is much more poignant now than it must have been when the movie came out. And when you read about his life and, you know, what he went through, it makes his his character's arc and the character's ending that I mean, it's really powerful when you kind of compare the two and lay them on top of one another. And I don't know if that's entirely fair to do, but I mean, I guess it's kind of inevitable at this point to do it. And I just F, I sort of like. I knew going into it, his life story a little bit, and then reading more about it right after I had seen the movie, kind of like it hit me watching it, and then it hit me again, kind of reflecting on it in a really powerful, profound way. Yeah, and we didn't uh, mention the very end, which ends with like kind of this famous non sequitur yes. moment, which Tony Leung yes, appears as the character he'll go on to play in, in The Mood for Love in 2046. But we just see him... It's the first time he's appeared in the, in the movie. movie. Essentially, Never the narrative has concluded. Yes. And there's this extra scene with Tony Leung in a, in a room doing sort of the things you were describing, sitting around in his undershirt, smoking, getting ready to go out. And then he leaves, and that's the end of the, the, end end of of the, the movie. Film. Yeah. I think I had read once that he had, uh, Wonka Wai had intended to shoot a storyline yes. with him, but that I love actually that he just you leaves like that, that end. Yeah, just because it also, you know, there is this sense of these characters moving through rented rooms, and like, you know, you've mentioned that the film has a very distinctive sense of place in terms of how its uh, rooms look and things like that, but that the people seem to kind of drift through them and onwards. So the idea that it ends with this total stranger setting up like his story is about to unfold and then the end there's something very poignant about that you know like there's always another character coming in to set yeah. up and a life to be lived yeah it's certainly distinctive it's very interesting the way you put it uh makes me like it more actually so <laughs> kudos to you thank you so that's days of being wild and it is available on netflix watch instantly okay next up is our behind the eight ball section <laughs> in which we give you a rapid-fire countdown of three picks that are new to streaming, two that are expiring soon, and one pick chosen blindly by number from our Netflix queue. Matt, are you ready? I am ready. All right, give us three new picks to streaming. Okay, the first pick is actually a group of picks. It's the documentary series 30 for 30 from ESPN Films. This is an amazing series of mostly one-hour documentaries, although some are longer, I'm not sure if every single one is coming to Netflix, but a lot of them, when I was looking, are coming to Netflix all on August 1st. And some of my favorites include No Crossover, which is a documentary by Steve James, Great. who made uh, 
Hoop Dreams, which I'm actually I'm spoiling my uh, expiring <laughs> titles in a minute, but you know the great documentary, and this is a story about Allen Iverson, the basketball player before he was famous. This incident in his past and the police investigation of it, and also uh, about Steve James's life growing up in this area of the South and the racial relations in it. Amazing. Uh, this other film called June Seventeenth, nineteen ninety four, by Brett Morgan, who directed the documentary The Kid Stays in the Picture. This amazing sort of collage of all these pop culture events, uh, sports events, really, that happened on the same day, June 17th, including the O.J. Simpson Bronco chase and cutting back and forth between the news footage of all these different events. Another amazing one. And I'll give you one more. Muhammad and Larry, which is by Albert Mazels, who did Gimme Shelter and Salesman and Great Gardens. It was sort of this like footage he had shot of a Muhammad Ali, Larry Holmes fight, which was towards the end of his career. And it's very sad footage of basically as Muhammad Ali's kind of life, his, his physicality was falling apart. And the, he'd never used it to make a movie out of it until this documentary, incredibly powerful. So those and many more, all available on Netflix on August 1st. Uh, available on Hulu, you have The Complete Metropolis. Uh, this is the classic 1927 Fritz Lang science fiction, one of the best films of all time as far as I'm concerned. This is the new restoration of this am- amazing footage that they found buried in an archive in South America and restored and brought back into the film. So it's longer than it's ever been. If you've never seen Metropolis, it's uh, definitely essential viewing. And last on Crackle. Somewhat less essential but fun, Christine, the 1983 John Carpenter uh, film based on the Stephen King novel about the killer car. All right. Two expiring films? Expiring. There's not a lot of expiring stuff, so we've had to sort of – you're not going to have much time to watch some of these. Expiring on August 2nd, we have Deep Red, the 1975 Giallo by Dario Argento. And I already mentioned it, Hoop Dreams, the amazing Steve James documentary from 1994 about high school basketball players from Chicago. That expires on August 7th. Okay, and one from your queue. You gave me number 175. It is Black Rain, the Ridley Scott movie starring Michael Douglas as a New York City cop. I think he's (laughs) on the hunt for a Japanese criminal. I've never seen it. I must have put this on my queue when Prometheus was out and everyone was talking about Ridley Scott. There was a Ridley Scott retrospective in New York. And I looked at what was available on streaming, and that one was, so I stuck it on there. Black Rain. Excellent. All right, Allison, it's your turn. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, let's hear three new to streaming titles. Okay, new to Netflix Watch Instantly, The Sound of Noise, 2010. Swedish film about a group of anarchist musicians who illegally perform these crazy musical uh, numbers on objects that you don't normally make music on. For instance power cables you know like the power lines that uh that that fuel the city or uh bulldozers or surgical equipment including the guy who's waiting for surgery uh these are really uh really amazingly choreographed numbers and the whole film is set up like a heist so that these you know these musicians these rogue musicians uh, break into places, do these number four different musical numbers that they've composed and uh, perform sometimes just for their own, for themselves as an audience. And meanwhile, a tone deaf policeman who hates music and has been born into a family of musicians <laughs> chases them down Naturally. and, uh, you know, has this kind of connection to one of the, the musicians. It's a lot of fun and also just crazy sound of noise on Netflix. 
also uh, new to streaming on Hulu Plus is In the Loop, 2009 political comedy. You know, I thought I'd mention this because Armando Iannucci, who is a director and writer, has Veep uh, just finished on HBO, the political comedy starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And this is a spinoff of his British series, The Thick of It. You don't need to know anything about The Thick of It. This is basically just about how... uh, Politics are also a workplace and people do all kinds of petty, ridiculous things that they do in offices just to get noticed or to get someone's attention or to make sure they're not getting left out of things. And in this case, it leads to like war. So that is In the Loop. It is on Hulu+. Plus. And my last pick is a film that I haven't seen yet, but I've heard quite a bit about it, and it sounds really interesting, and I was happy to see that it's new to Netflix. That film is Snow on the Bluff. 2012 film it is you know starring uh, a real atlanta guy who commits robberies apparently curtis snow and it's uh, a film that is it starts with him robbing people of the camera that they're using that they were shooting themselves buying drugs from him he robs them he takes the camera and then he gives it to his friends to be like we should shoot our life in the hood you know in where they live so it's got all of these is it a documentary no it's scripted but it's a lot of scenes apparently yeah to the point where apparently uh the atlanta police having watched the movie followed up about some recent robberies with the cast wow so there's a lot that it blurs the line uh, between fiction and not, but it also sounds like it's coming from a uh, a place that's just like so far off the normal mainstream, you know, filmmaking world uh, that it's bound to be interesting. Uh, directed by Damon Russell and actually executive produced by um, by Omar from The Wire, uh, so who who kind of had I heard about them, I guess, and decided he wanted to help them finish the film. So I, I have no idea about the quality of this film. Michael K. Williams was one over. Uh, and I, it's good enough for me. It's, if good, it's enough good enough for, for exactly. Omar. It's good enough for me. But, you know, I, I think that there definitely sounds like something interesting to be had here, regardless of how good the ultimate product is. So that is streaming on Netflix. Okay, two expiring titles. All right. As you said, Matt, uh, there weren't a lot of expiring titles this time around. So the first one is expiring August 2nd on Netflix. There's not a lot of time for this. It's Maniac. William Lustig's genuinely disturbing 1980 cult slasher favorite, if you want to call it that, about a serial killer who scalps his victims. Uh, It's one of those films that is even more troubling by the way it's a little rough Mm. and a little low budget uh, and, and a real look at 1980s New York when it was still kind of scary itself, when even when there isn't a, a scary serial killer lurching around. And my other pick is expiring on August 7th from Netflix, and it is The Ruling Class, 1972 British black comedy starring Peter O'Toole as a paranoid schizophrenic who inherits the title of the 14th Earl of Gurney. So different psychiatrists go to treat him and try and cure him, and in fact, each one makes him worse and a more frightening, terrible human being. So that is The Ruling Class, expiring from Netflix. Okay, and one random movie from your queue. All right, you picked number 81. Which is Play Misty for me. Oh, a good yes, one. I've never seen it. It's uh, Clint Eastwood's directorial debut. Yep. And he plays a DJ who is violently stalked by one of his fans mm. uh, who likes Misty, the song Misty. <laughs> um, 1971 film. Always sounded really interesting. Just never got around to seeing it. So hopefully I will get to it soon. That is a good one. You have to watch Play Misty for me. I will. 
Okay, now it's time to get to next week's listener's choice options. We've got three options for you to choose from. I think this is going to be a very interesting vote this week. Allison, what is option number one? Well, option number one is a film that both of us, I think, have been following and seen several times now in different versions. It is Margaret, Kenneth Lonergan's kind of famously delayed film, Troubled Production. It's uh, available on iTunes and VOD now. And if you haven't had a chance to see it, it is uh, a film that we're both very fond of. There are different cuts available. There's an extended cut. There's a theatrical cut. The theatrical cut is the one that is on iTunes. Right. And we can, you know, we would also, I'm sure, love to discuss a little bit about the differences between the two. Right. We've seen the extended version just recently when it premiered in New York. So we could talk about that as well. But we'd primarily be focusing, focusing probably on, on the theatrical cut since that's the one that's available for people to watch. Right. And the film is about Anna Paquin as a, a New Her York Her character teenager. is not named margaret no. people keep doing that <laughs> as a lisa new- her character's name is lisa yes and it's new york as a new york teenager who gets involved with a terrible bus accident and then uh has a coming of age crisis i don't know how to describe it other than that other than it it is an amazing portrait of both new york and teenagerdom uh, so that is Margaret. It is on iTunes. Okay. Our second option is going to be available on Netflix. Watch instantly starting on August 1st. I think you haven't seen this one before, but I have. It's called Cruising. It's a William Friedkin's film from 1980. I guess it's a good time to talk about a William Friedkin movie because he's got a new movie that's just coming out in limited release called Killer Joe, which I haven't seen yet. Uh, I'm not sure if you have, Allison. I have not. Getting some mixed reviews, but a lot of, like, with the people who like it really like it. And it's supposed to be very outrageous and crazy and demented, which is kind of uh, similar to Cruising, which is about Al Pacino, who goes undercover. He's, he plays a cop, and he goes undercover in New York City's gay community to kind of hunt a serial killer who's hunting gay men. Very controversial at the time because, well, the subject matter for one, but the debate over whether it was exploiting gay subculture, whether it was homophobic, whether it was a a fair portrait or not. I think it would be an interesting discussion, uh, but I think Margaret would be an interesting discussion too. I'd be happy to see either of those movies again. Uh, I've only seen Cruising once, but I liked it. I thought it was very interesting. Uh, So that's Cruising. It will be available on August 1st on Netflix. All right. And our last pick will also be available on Netflix starting August 1st. It is Heaven's Gate. Have you seen this? I have never seen the whole thing. I have not seen the whole thing either. So this will be one. This is the one that neither of us has seen all the way through. Uh, You know, calling back to last episode's discussion about New Hollywood. This is the film that many saw as marking the end of the era, the kind of Famous flop, incredibly expensive film, 1980, uh, American epic directed by Michael Cimino, starred Chris Christopherson, Christopher Walken, Isabella Huppert, and many others. Um, you know, extravagance, not necessarily extravagant in everything that ended up on screen. Some of that was just went into extravagant production decisions. But, uh, you know, a, a film that was... Uh, given a really tough time when it came out and has since been reevaluated. And I think people have come around to it a lot more. So uh, I think it'll be interesting to to take a look at that, especially since neither of us has uh, has seen the whole thing. So that is Heaven's Gate. It is streaming on Netflix starting August 1st. And just to add a little timeliness to that discussion, if that's what it winds up being, Heaven's Gate is going to be playing at the Venice Film Festival later this summer in a restored print, the press release or one of the articles that I read said it was a Criterion restoration, suggesting that we could be in line for a Criterion Collection DVD and Blu-ray of Heaven's Gate. So it's going to be perhaps discussed a little bit 
in the weeks, months ahead, so it might be inappropriate viewing for that reason. Which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to feedback at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll at the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, August 6th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be Monday, August 13th. Do I have that right, Allison? Yes, you do. Okay, very good. All right. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review that you pick. In the meantime, you can follow me and Matt on Twitter at twitter.com slash Allison Wilmore and twitter.com slash Matt Singer. And you can follow the show, of course, at twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>